Today's reading is Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. The events of the, the past two weeks have brought, you know, questions regarding justice, particularly uh, uh, racial justice, to the forefront of our national consciousness in the way that they haven't been uh, for quite some time. Now, of course, I think it's true to say that America is perpetually having a conversation about race, or it's probably fair to say we're perpetually having a conversation about having a conversation about race. This makes sense given our particular history and the role that race has played since well before the founding of our nation. The, the New York Times has gotten much attention over the past several months, not all of it uh, positive, with their 1619 project, which views American history through the lens of when the first African slaves ar arrived on what would become uh, the arrived in what would become the American colonies. And this project argues that the American experiment has been defined from its inception by the practice and defense of the enslavement and oppression of people of African descent. But actually, the, the history of uh, African slaves on this continent goes all the way back to the 1500s and Spanish Florida. Now, nevertheless, I am not going to attempt to adjudicate such claims this morning about, about what America is really about or what defines the American experiment. That, that's beyond the scope and scale of what I want to say today. I'm going to merely draw attention to the fact that these con concerns for racial justice have, have taken on a heightened sense of urgency since the murder of George Floyd on May 25th when he spent eight minutes and 46 seconds under the knee of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. This past week, I was invited to uh, be part of a, a, a dialogue, a conversation by a white pastor friend of mine, uh, who some of you out there know, uh, Pete Delicentina, uh, who was um, pastor years ago uh, of Knox Presbyterian Church just down the road from us. And so Pete invited me to be a part of this conversation uh, with two black pastors that he knows, one from the Seattle area, one from greater D.C., and I am the token Minneapolitan, uh, uh, and so people were, I think, interested in what I had to say insofar as, uh, you know, I was living near sort of the, the epicenter uh, of what has rippled out across our, our country and, and our world over the course of the past almost two weeks at this point. Now, one takeaway for me from that conversation um, 
was that, you know, as a white pastor, racial justice is, of course, something that uh, I want to see advance in this country. I mean, literally, what person could agree, disagree with that goal? And, and who could deny that racial disparities continue to exist? But for me, you know, of course, I want to see that happen, but it's been largely a want, not a need. And that's a privilege not afforded to my black colleagues. But all across our city and our country, we, we see signs that say, you know, justice for George. And on all across our city and our country, we, we, we hear protesters marching, uh, chanting the slogan, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. And so that raises for us the question of what is justice and why should we care about it? And so I want us to spend uh, the next few weeks looking at, at various aspects of a biblical understanding of justice. Examining it from several angles and looking at its different components. And so before I get started, though, I, I want to be just perfectly clear about a couple things. And one of them is that justice is a central biblical theme. You cannot spend much time in, in the Bible and not hear about God's justice, God's righteousness over and over again. You know, I've been reading the Psalms. Amy and I, we've, we've been doing this along with uh, the church for the past 80, I mean, 80 about days now. It might even be a little bit more than that at this point. And, and you cannot read through the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, and not come face to face again and again and again with this concept of justice, this desire for justice. And so, you know, just from the beginning, I, I'm, I'm going to posit and assume and put forth for you uh, what I believe is an unassailable proposition, that, that, that justice is a theme that is at the heart of Scripture. I'm also going to commit to you that I know sometimes when, when we start talking about justice, uh, people's spidey sense goes up, and you think I'm going to do some sort of bait and switch, that when I'm talking about justice, what I'm going to do is just lift up basically uh, the policy preferences of one political party, which, you know, I mean, let's just be honest, when we talk about justice in this country around Christianity, that's usually uh, the, the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican Party. And so I promise you, I am not going to be a partisan hack. In the midst of all this, I have absolutely no interest in that. I have my own idiosyncratic uh, political beliefs that I'm not going to foist upon you. I have my own detailed policy prescriptions that I would like to see carried out that I'm not going to foist upon you either. I'm happy to talk about them in other circumstances, but it's not my job from the pulpit to impose upon you those things. I want to hear and listen what Scripture has to say. And then I also want us to use our imaginations and thinking about how we can bring that to bear on our contemporary situation. And so there's four things I'm going to look at this morning regarding biblical justice. And, and, and one is its necessity. And, and the other thing is its connection to right actions. And then also its connection to right attitudes. And then lastly, its connection to a right relationship with God. And so first, its necessity. And, and, and so here's, here's the deal, folks. Pursuing justice is not optional for us as Christians. Look at our passage here in Micah 6. Now, this is one of the most famous justice passages in the entire Bible. Micah prophesied around the time, you know, 722 BC, roughly, uh, when the northern kingdom, which was centered at Samaria, that's what was its capital, when that fell to the Assyrian army. 
And it appeared as though at that moment that a similar fate was going to befall uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, which was centered at Jerusalem. And so Micah, in this time of of great turmoil and tumult and terror, uh, he gave that a theological interpretation with his prophetic work. And he declared that these events were were not random. They were not an accident. They they were evidence of God's judgment upon his people for two reasons primarily. One of them was idolatrous worship. And and the second reason was that the elites of of Judah and of Israel had fallen into practices of exploitation and injustice regarding the most vulnerable in society. Micah accused the elites of society of failing the people who needed protection the most, the most vulnerable in their midst. Does that sound like a situation that we can relate to? Now, because of this failure, Micah pictures God dragging his people into the courtroom. He's going to have a lawsuit with them. And God summons all of creation to witness the proceedings. Now, I love uh, the King James version of this passage. You know, in the ESV, we get verse 2 rendered this way. The Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Uh, But the KJV is so much more uh, poetic here. It says, the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Now, you hear that, and you think, ruh And so God begins by asking Israel, how have I wronged you? Tell tell me what I've done to you. And and then God recounts all of the ways that he has done right by them, all rooted in the fact that he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and then led them into the land of promise. So this question, it then lingers, it then hangs out there. Given all that God has done for them, what can God's people possibly say in response? What can they possibly offer up as a defense at this moment? And the answer is, of course, there is nothing that they can say in their own defense. If they were to speak up, they would be condemning themselves. They got to take the fifth in this particular moment. So if they can't say anything to justify themselves or defend their actions, then the question becomes, what can we do? What can we do to make reparation? What can we do to make restitution? What can we do to make atonement? What can we do to make this right? How many thousand rams would it take? How many oceans of oil would it take? I mean, Micah even goes so far as to suggest the sacrifice of their firstborn. Would that do? Of course not. So then, if there's nothing you can say, if there's no sacrifice you can make, what do you do? What do you do? And then Micah provides the answer. It comes directly from God. He has showed you, O man, O mortal, O sister and brother, what is good. What is good? What the Lord requires of you. So what follows then is a call for justice that is a requirement. This isn't an ask. This isn't a want. This isn't a if you get around to it. And so if we want to love, serve, honor, obey, and glorify God, 
which is our chief purpose, our chief end, is to glorify God, to enjoy God, then we must commit ourselves to the work of justice because he requires it of us. All right, so we see justice as a requirement, but, 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 but then uh, what, what does the Lord require? And so the first thing it says is do justice. And so this is about right actions, doing justice. It's not just about the right, you know, attitudes or idea of justice in your head. So biblical justice is about right actions, doing justice. And the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. You can repeat that at home, mishpat. And so first we, we can look at some of the definitions of this word. And so, well, I just said it's about doing things. In order to understand what we're supposed to do, we have to understand what justice looks like. How can that word be understood and defined in Scripture? And it occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. And so, you know, uh, today we're going to talk about definitions. And this is just a teaser. Uh, when I get my next sermon in two weeks, we're, we're, we're going to explore images of justice. We're going to engage our imaginations in a different way. But I, I said, I'm not going to try to cram everything into one sermon and, and, and preach for an hour about this. So this is part one. In two weeks, we will get part two. So this word for justice, as I said, mishpat, it occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. And so justice, it includes how individuals treat one another. Certainly. That is an aspect of justice, how two human beings relate to one another. But it includes a lot more than that. And the biblical concept of justice is, is about the ordering of human relationships. And so in that sense, it has a, a systemic character to it. Biblical justice, it includes impartial arbitration. Now, what that means is that someone who is rendering a judgment, making a decision between two parties, is supposed to decide based on the law and the facts and the evidence, and nothing else. You know, we can see from this concept, and, 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 and the Bible shares this idea with other ancient cultures, and that's why justice is, is pictured in her ideal with all the, you know, statues and representations we see in art of justice. Justice is, is, is a woman who is blindfolded, holding the scales, right? It's, it's supposed to be rendered on the weight of the evidence alone, not whether or not the, the judge likes or identifies with one of the parties, now, we know that our own system of justice so often falls short of this ideal, right? That if you're poor or you're black, and especially if you're not the state with its almost infinite resources arrayed against you, you're not going to get a fair shake. Uh, Matthew Loftus, who's a, a missionary doctor currently serving in Kenya, but who also uh, lived in Sandtown, which is a neighborhood in Baltimore, very impoverished, racked by lots of violent crime. He said this, so he's got a lot of experience living and working in impoverished communities. And he, he said this, the more time that I spend in impoverished communities, the more I am convinced that procedural justice is the foundation of virtually any other kind of development. At a very fundamental human level, people want to know that the guilty people will be caught and punished in a fair way. They also want to know that innocent people will be undisturbed by the same forces responsible for catching and punishing wrongdoers. Once this is screwed up, nothing is safe. If state-sanctioned violence doesn't do the job of keeping you safe and could do the opposite at any time, then anything you build, save, or cherish could be taken from you at any time. 
If people lose faith in the impartiality of the arbiters of justice, then the foundations of society crumble. So biblical justice includes impartial arbitration. It also includes rendering someone their rights or legal claims. The word for mishpat is is used in in relationship to to the Levites. And these were the Old Testament uh, tribe of Israel that were responsible for, um, for carrying out the worship of the people. And, and they had no territory. They had no land that was given to them. And so their, their, what justice for them meant, their mishpat was their legal right to a certain percentage of, of uh, the crops and produce of the other tribes and to a certain percentage and portion of the sacrifices made at the temple. So biblical justice is also giving, giving someone their due allowing them to claim and assert their rights. Amy and I took a a class at the University of Minnesota uh, from a professor named Joel Samaha uh, on criminal procedure and uh, as it related to the Fourth Amendment. And this, uh, safe to say, this was one of our favorite classes that we ever took. And so he literally wrote the, the, the textbook on criminal procedure in the Fourth Amendment. And so in that class, we talked a lot about our rights against, you know, illegal searches and seizures, and how our rights protect us against the abuses of the state. And Professor Sahi, he was an, an ama- Samaha, he was an amazing teacher, very, very passionate about these things. And so, you know, he'd talk about how some people would sometimes, you know, complain to him about uh, someone getting off on a, on a technicality of the law, and, and he would say, you know, those technicalities are our are, are, are rights, and people fought and died. He would get very passionate. People fought and died to give you those rights. And so while the Fourth Amendment is not in the Bible, a passion for claiming our rights for our fellow citizens, it it certainly is. So biblical justice, it includes impartial arbitration. It it includes a a, a respect for rights. And and it also includes, uh, mishpat is used to refer to customs or conventions in society. And so in this way, it, it involves a respect for, for precedent and tradition. The sense that we're not just making things up as we go along. Biblical justice also includes punishment. Punishing the wicked. Justice is when people break the law or harm others, they are not allowed to get away with it with impunity. And, and that's one of the great you know, frustrations with police brutality. So that somehow, you know, sometimes those who enforce the laws appear in, in, in certain instances to not be subject to them. Because, you know, I recognize that, that a cop has a right to uh, detain me and, and, and even use force against me in specific, limited circumstances. But this doesn't give him or her the right to arrest me for no reason or harass me for no reason or knock me upside the head for no reason just because they don't like the cut of my jib or the tone of my voice. Or the color of my skin. And most importantly, biblical justice has a socio-ethical dimension to it. It, It's it's especially connected to how certain groups in society are treated. What what the Christian philosopher, Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff, has called the quartet of the vulnerable. And we see these groups occurring uh, multiple times in the Old Testament. And that includes the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. The quartet of the vulnerable. 
Now, these were the most vulnerable people in ancient Israelite society. When we talk about, you know, being vulnerable in the ancient world, I mean, this was largely a subsistence agriculture society. When you're vulnerable, you are, you know, susceptible to famine, to disease, to death in a very short period of time. And so with the word, you know, these words are specific. Uh, They actually cover uh, much broader categories that we can relate to today. The word for widow in Hebrew comes from the exact same word, uh, the same root as as the word for someone who is voiceless. It's fascinating. So a widow is someone who is voiceless, someone who no one listens to, rendering that person effectively mute. An orphan is someone who's alone, someone who doesn't have a, a defender or an advocate. A stranger means someone from another country, another ethnic group. Like uh, in ancient Israelite society, you know, we could think of a refugee or, or an immigrant, which applies, of course, to our own country. But, but it also means someone who doesn't belong to the dominant social group. When, when it talks about in the Old Testament, this would be a non-Israelite, regardless of their, you know, immigration status. And lastly, there are the poor who aren't just people without money, food, clothes, or housing, but in Hebrew, uh, the, the word literally relates to those who lack power, those who are unable to, to lift themselves up. And so biblical justice, then, is, is about how we defend, care for, and provide for the most vulnerable in particular. It's not just enough that we don't actively oppress them. Justice has to do with how we express generosity towards them. Because these groups are, are, are most likely to, to be vulnerable of and, 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 and victims of injustice because we know that injustice is not evenly distributed throughout society. It always falls most heavily on the quartet of the vulnerable. Now, biblical justice concerns how we can take people who belong to those groups, to the quartet of the vulnerable, and give them an opportunity to not just remain sealed and and trapped in those categories, but actually move outside of them. As one article I read uh, put it on this concept of mishpat, justice, in in the Bible, it also includes humanization, giving people options to significantly alter their life circumstances. That can take a lot of ways, a lot of shapes, and a lot of forms. But that, too, is justice. Justice means that just because someone is born poor, they don't have to stay that way. And crucially, when we talk about all of this and we talk about, you know, justice being care for the vulnerable, we we, we care particularly for these groups because God himself has identified with them. You see it across the Old Testament, across Scripture. Psalm 146, just one random example. God is the maker of heaven and earth, it says. The sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. This is is language we all understand. God as as creator and sustainer and upholder of the universe. But then it goes on to say, He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But He frustrates the ways of the wicked. 
And so doing justice ought to be near to our hearts because it is close to the heart of God. God has chosen to identify the God who made everything, maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that fills them. That same God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, has chosen to identify himself with the most vulnerable. And this is in contrast to all the other deities that were on offer in the ancient world who were identified with the haves of ancient society, the kings, the priests, the Brahmins, the, 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 the military commanders. Our God has done the exact opposite. He is the God of the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. And so biblical justice means holding those that are close to the heart of God close to our own hearts. All right, so we've seen that biblical justice, it's a requirement. It's, it's, a, it's about doing the right things. But it's also about the right attitude. Micah says, do justice. And then he says, love mercy. Love mercy. And the word for mercy, it comes from my favorite Hebrew word. It's, it's my favorite Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and that's chesed. Chesed. And this is in word that's untranslatable by, by any one single English word. Oftentimes it gets rendered as loving kindness. But it means love that is loyal, love that endures, love that, that, that is fierce, love that, that never quits, never gives up. It's compassionate. It's always and forever love. This is what the Lord requires of us, to have that kind of heart posture when we work for justice. And this is so important because the danger is that when we work for justice, that we will not love kindness. We can become jaded. We can become smug. We can become self-righteous. We can become holier than thou. This is always the temptation. And maybe if you've been on social media, maybe you've seen this kind of attitude in practice, maybe you've exhibited it yourself. Because working for justice, it's about loving kindness. It's not about impressing other people with how enlightened you've become. That's not loving kindness. How much smarter you are than them. I was texting with my cousin, you know, I said to him that one of the things that I worry about in this moment, this particular moment, is that some people are going to spend a lot of time and energy, you know, so that, that a certain type of white person can feel morally superior to another kind of white person, and that will make no difference to improve the material conditions for black lives. Loving mercy, it means treating people with dignity, with dignity. This is especially important. This is utterly crucial. When people who understand themselves as privileged start speaking on behalf of and interacting with those who aren't identified as privileged. Loving mercy means that we are not paternalistic. It means that we are not condescending. You know, we're, we're not bringing sort of this is the white man's burden to engage in this work. And we need some white saviors. 
to get out there. That's not loving kindness. Loving kindness means that we don't give in to the soft bigotry of low expectation. And so that regardless of privilege or status or class or race or ethnicity, each and every person we affirm is made in the image of God and imbued with an inherent dignity that we must affirm and respect. The less privileged are not less human than the privileged. And God help us if we ever think otherwise or act otherwise. (laughs) And then just even unwittingly reinforce the hierarchies that that we want to upend. And loving mercy also means that we have an open heart towards the cries of the oppressed. That we don't blame them for their plight or excuse it away. That we don't only listen to voices or seek out voices that confirm all of our priors. We don't sit back and, you know, tut, tut, tut and say, what is wrong with those people? That we don't look for reasons or excuses to justify injustice. I call this the, you know, he's no angel phenomenon. And people will point out, George Floyd was no angel. And at the same time, fail to extend that same logic toward the leader of the free world. Loving kindness means extending the grace we want shown to us and to people like us and who we like to other people not like us, who we're not inclined to like. Loving mercy, lastly, it means having a heart for real, actual people. You cannot claim to love humanity if you don't love real, actual human beings. And all of their brokenness, all of their messiness, all of their beauty, and all of their ugliness. And lastly, justice requires walking humbly with our God. And while this is my last point, it is certainly not the least. As Christians, we cannot work for justice if we are not walking with our God. And if we don't have a heart for justice, we we are not walking closely enough with him. To walk humbly with our God is to have an intimate relationship with him such that we have hearts for what God has hearts for, has a heart for. That we desire what he desires, that we love what he loves Ever since the late 19th century, there's been a division in Christianity, particularly American Christianity, between those who emphasize justice and those who emphasize a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who stress Christianity as needing to be expressed in social action and those who stress Christianity as being expressed in evangelism. It's a false dichotomy. It's never an either or. It's a both and. Orthodoxy, right? Theology, right? Beliefs about God and and, and human beings and salvation and redemption and sin and, and, you know, eschatology, right? Theology and orthopraxy, right? Action, they always belong together. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Don't let us divorce what he has wedded. And there is a direct connection between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and their heart for justice and for the poor. 
Because when we realize that we have been saved by grace, through faith, we realize we have no claim to make upon God whatsoever. God owes us nothing. Yet in Christ, he has given us everything, more than we could ever ask or imagine. And when I look at the brokenness of humanity, and I look at the absurdity of this world, I so often respond to it with disgust and with hate. I wouldn't die for this world. If it were up to me, I would have left this world to perish, to destroy itself. But thankfully, God didn't do that. The Father sent the Son not to condemn the world, but what? In order that the world might be saved through him because he so loves it. And so when we understand how sinful we are, and yet how gracious God is, how we deserve nothing but condemnation, but we have been given salvation, how can we respond but with, with, with generous gratitude and gratuitous justice? We deserve nothing. We've been given everything. We are miserable sinners and we've been forgiven. We are utterly impoverished before God, owing him a debt we can never repay. And yet through Jesus Christ, we have been made rich and given an eternal inheritance. Knowing all that, how can we not seek the good of our fellow human beings whom God loves so much that he sent his son to die for them? How can we not? And if justice is that close to God's heart, our good and gracious and amazing God, how can it not be close to ours if we say that we love him, that we've laid down our lives for him, that we will follow him wherever he leads us, that we believe that his word is true, the answer is that if we love Jesus and want others to love him too, then it must be. It must be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which was inspired by your spirit. We thank you for prophets like Micah, who showed us the way to do what is good. And so God, I pray this morning that you would give us hearts for a, a generous justice, that we as your kingdom workers would do more and more to reveal your kingdom's presence in our midst. And that all of that would be a reflection of our gratitude for your amazing grace that has, has saved a wretch like me and everyone else who's listening whose heart belongs to you. And forgive us for where we have been unkind or calloused or indifferent. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.